I'm delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you, and that you'll also make your plans to be back with us this evening. On Sunday evenings, we've been talking about things that have to do with eternity and life beyond the grave. We've talked about what happens at death. We've talked about the judgment that is to come. This evening, we'll talk about the resurrection. What does the Bible say about the resurrection? What does it say in the Old Testament? Does it say anything in the Old Testament about it? And what does the New Testament teach about the resurrection? We'll talk about that this evening. Come back and be a part of that study. On Sunday mornings, we've not been in a series, but we've laced some studies together. We've talked about Moses living right in a world so wrong. We've talked about Daniel, very closely related to that, as a man who was ready for life's challenges. Today, I want us to talk about how we live and how we live in the present age. As you look at time, time is divided obviously into three segments. There is the past, there is the present, and there is the future. We look at ourselves and our service to the Lord. We look at what we've done or failed to do in the past. We look at what the future may hold. But our focal point needs to be on what do we need to be doing at the present. <clears throat> when we look at God's people as a whole, <clears throat> we can look at the past and we see Noah, for example, in his service to the Lord, built an ark. <clears throat> Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that God would show him. Moses built a tabernacle at the instructions of God according to the pattern. Solomon built the temple. <clears throat> Nehemiah built a wall, rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. The Levites offered their sacrifices to God. We turn to the other side and we look at the future. For God's people and Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 tells us that we'll spend eternity praising God in song. But the question is, how should I be living in the present age? It's all well and good to focus on the past and look at what's been done in the past, to look at what's going to happen in the future. The past is gone. The future is yet to be. The question is and remains, what should I be doing and how should I be living in the present age? Let's look at Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at this verse time and again. You might put a marker or finger there. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, the text says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The question is, what should we be doing in the present age? Not what all has been done in the past, that's interesting to study. What will we do in the future, that's also interesting. But regardless of those, what should I be doing in the present age? Titus 2, 11 and 12 addresses how we should live in the present age. So let's talk about living in the present age based on Titus chapter 2. What should we be doing in the present age? What does this text tell us? Well, let's look at some things in the context before we begin to look at our major points. Let's go back to Titus chapter 2 and notice the text says, For the grace of God which brings salvation, appeared unto all men, teaching us. What I want you to see is the grace of God teaches us that we should do some things. The grace of God teaches us how to live. 
Someone said, well, I, I don't like the instruction of how I'm to live and what I'm to do and not to do. I don't like all of that, but I do like the grace of God. I want the grace of God. Well, perhaps that's based on some misconception about the grace of God. Some have the idea that the grace of God is like a handout. I'm not opposed to the government helping some people, but some picture the idea of grace like welfare, that you don't have to do anything, you don't have to meet any conditions, but you just are going to be handed out grace. God's just going to give you some grace. You're in sin, God will give you some grace to take care of that. You sin again, God will give you some more grace. You get in trouble again, God gives you more grace. Unconditional. It's the idea that the grace of God means that he'll ignore our sins. So I'm thankful for the grace of God, someone thinks. Well, because I can commit sin, and God's just going to overlook that, and he's going to ignore that because he's gracious. Some have the idea that I'm going to be saved even though I'm not living like the Word of God says. I know I'm not living like that, but the grace of God's just going to take care of that. And so those are misconceptions about grace. This text tells us, Titus chapter 2, that the grace of God brings salvation. Well, we understand that, and we're ready to embrace that. I want the grace of God. I want to have salvation. I want to be saved in eternity. But the same grace that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, not just to some, but to every one of us. But the text goes on to say that it teaches us. The grace of God teaches us. So listen to this carefully. Any instruction from the Word is the grace of God teaching us. That's what this text is telling me. So any instruction that I get from the Word, if it's found in the Word and I can read the Word and that's what the Word says, that's the grace of God teaching us. So that means every command, every prohibition, every admonition, every rebuke, and every correction is by the grace of God. And said, I want the grace of God. Well, all right, the grace of God involves commands. The grace of God involves some instruction. The grace of God involves some rebuke. The grace of God involves some admonition. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Now that's saying the same thing that I saw in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has revealed His will to us by inspiration. And it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, and for instruction in living right before God that I may be fully and completely equipped to do everything God wants me to do. So everything God tells me, every command, everything He says you need to do this, and everything He says you don't do that is by the grace of God. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. The text says in 2 Peter 1, 3, God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What that means is I'm not left without guidance or complete instruction. Do you want to know how to live in the present age? How does God want me to live now? I know what they did in the past and I know what we're going to do in the future, but what am I supposed to be doing now? God has not left me without complete instruction. And His grace has taught me. So says Titus chapter 2. So let's go back to Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us. Teaching us what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, the grace of God teaches me to do some things. 
to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So sometimes the grace of God says no. It's a misconception if I have the idea the grace of God just gives me all yeses. The grace of God just gives me great blessings all the time. Actually, the grace of God sometimes says no. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness. Interesting, the NIV translates that. It teaches us to say no. When you teach your child, you need to say no to this. You don't, you don't do that. And when your friends ask you to do it, you say no. And when they encourage you to do something, you say you're not going to do it. That's grace. God does the same thing. God says, I'm going to teach you to say no. Say no to what? Ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Strong says it means impiety. By implication, wickedness. It's the idea of that which is in contrast to being godly, being pious, being devout, being devoted. We'll say more about godliness a little bit later. And so say no. The grace of God teaches us to say no to wickedness and worldly lust. Anything that is improper, all improper desire pertaining to this life. It may be the desire for wealth that is contrary to the will of God. It may be pleasure, the desire for pleasure. It may be the desire for honor. It may be sensual indulgences. Well, the grace of God says, I'm going to teach you to say no to all of that. That's part of the grace of God. Let's go back to our text. Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation, that same grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. That we should live, now notice this, three things, soberly, secondly, righteously, and thirdly, godly in the present age. Our question is, what would I need to be doing in the present age? Live soberly, righteously, and godly. Now you can't live soberly, righteously, and godly unless you say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. When you do that, that's not enough. Then we need to say yes to these three things. Soberness, righteousness, and godliness. So let's talk about those three things. Those are our three points this morning. Let's talk about living in the present age. What does it mean to be living soberly, righteously, and godly? That's what we're to do in the present age. If we're going to be like Moses, living right in a world so wrong, or we're going to be like Daniel, prepared for the world's challenges, then we need to live soberly, righteously, and godly. In the present age. Let's start with soberly. What does the idea of soberly suggest? Let's give some definitions. Some of these are from commentators, others for lexicographers. Barnes says the idea of soberly means that we should exercise a due restraint in our passions and propensities. Now we're going to take our time and work through these definitions to get the idea. What, what does it mean to be soberly? Someone said, I know what it means to be sober. It means to be free of intoxicants. Well, yeah, that's included, but that's not really what he's talking about. Maybe included, but what is the idea of living soberly? That we're exercising due restraint. Focus on that. Thayer says it means with sound mind, soberly, temperately, using some temperance, some control. I'm seeing a connection between why Barnes said what he said. Thayer is a lexicographer. 
The vine defines it. It suggests the exercise of that self-restraint that governs all passions and desires, enabling the believer to be conformed to the mind of Christ. I want to read that one again. That one's interesting. See, so I'm, I'm, I want to know, I, I want to live soberly, but what does that mean? Vine says it's the idea of restraining yourself so that you govern and control your passions and desires and that enables you then to submit to the will of God. Otherwise, you can't submit to the will of God. Adam Clark says, having every temper and appetite and desire under the government of reason. And reason itself under the government of the Spirit of God. So whatever your desires are and whatever your temptations are and whatever your appetite is, you govern those by reason and make sure your reason, your thinking, and your conscience is governed by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to live soberly. So what we just saw in our definition is that soberly means I'm using restraint and self-control. You want to know how to live in the present age? You want to live like Moses, be like Daniel, be like other great Bible characters? We need to have restraint and self-control. Let's look at some passages that will help us with that. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. You are familiar with this text. Jesus talks about coming and being his disciple, being his follower. And he said in verse 34, when he called to himself, his disciples to himself, whoever desires to come after me. You want to be my disciple? You want to be a Christian? You want to be a follower of Christ? You want to be a disciple of Christ? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to be my follower? You first of all need to learn to deny yourself. That's restraint. That's self-control. Now self-denial and self-control are not synonymous, but they overlap that circle where the two circles overlap is a great deal of overlap. Perhaps more about that in a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. You are familiar with the fact that 1 Peter talks about growing as Christians. We're to add to our faith virtue to virtue knowledge. You take the foundation of faith, and then you add these building blocks of a Christian, what we call the Christian graces. Which, by the way, which, by the way, are things that we never master. These building blocks that we build with, that is love, for example, we never master love, but we just keep growing in love. Knowledge, we never master knowledge, but we keep growing in that. But one of the things that's to be added is temperance or self-control. Add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control. King James says temperance. So if you want to be one that's growing and improving and continuing to mature in the kingdom, then you need to have self-control and improving in self-control. In other words, you need to be better today than you were last year. Better now than you were five years ago. Keep growing and maturing in self-control and self-restraint. In other words, the idea of saying no to yourself or denying self means you literally say no to yourself. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to be. Here's what I want to say. And you say, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do that. Now here's some comments, one, two are from a lexicographer. What does it mean to have self-control and self-denial? Thayer says it means to forget oneself. In other words, you take yourself and you suppress your will and your desire. You suppress yourself. Lose sight of oneself and one's own interest. This is what I want. Here's my rights. Thayer says it means self-government. 
It's easy to be controlled. If someone is controlling you, it's easy to submit to that, I suppose. And so what if in the matter, for example, you're spending that someone was controlling your spending? Well, that's easy to handle, but when you've got to say no to yourself and you're going to have some, some restraint. Or the things you look at, or the things you say, that someone else is not controlling that, but you have to control yourself. You govern yourself. I like what Barclay says. Barclay says it's the ability to get a grip of oneself. You get a hold of yourself, and you make yourself do. Now, two things are involved in self-control and self-denial. You say no to certain things, and you say, I'm not going to do that. But you also make yourself do what you know you need to do. Let me illustrate. Here's a fellow that has a problem with drinking and, and he keeps going back to the bottle and you say, well, you know what? He doesn't have any self-control. And you're right. Here's someone else that says, you know what? I know I need to treat my wife better, but I just haven't done that. You know what his problem is? Same problem that the drinker has. He doesn't have any self-control. He's not making himself do what he knows he needs to do. Same problem. You want to live soberly, righteously, and godly? Soberly means there's going to be restraint and self-control. Secondly, you want to live in the present age? You want to live like God wants you? You want to know how the grace of God is teaching you? You're to live righteously as well as soberly. What is righteously? Thayer says it means justly. Agreeable to what's right. Properly as is right, uprightly agreeable to the laws of rectitude. Or maybe that didn't help you. Bind says it means justly. Clark maybe give us some insight to this. Rending to every man his due, injuring no person in his body, mind or reputation or property. Now let's stop there, go back to what Thayer said. Thayer says it means agreeably to what's right. Justly, he said. So did mine say justly. In other words, in our dealings with others, see, notice the first soberly has to do with how our view of ourselves, how we control ourselves. This has to do with our dealings with others. We deal righteously, justly, rendering to every man his due, Clark says. You're not injuring his body, his mind, his reputation, or his property. You do well unto them as they, you would they should do to us. That reminds us of Matthew 12, 7, 12. And filling up the duties of the particular stations in which it has pleased God to fix us, committing no sin, omitting no duty. So let's look at what that means. That just simply means from those definitions, it means you treat others fair and you treat them right. You want to know how you live in the present age? There's self-control, self-denial. But then you treat others fair and you treat them right. Now that's easier said than done. I understand the principle, but we don't always do that, do we? So let's look at some passages that we know well. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 12. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And we just recently came through the Sermon on the Mount and a Sunday morning series dealing with this same sermon. And one of the things we pointed out is that Jesus says in this kingdom... It has everything to do with your relationship to God, chapter 6, but it also has everything to do with your relationship to fellow man, how you treat other people. And so he said this. 
Whatever you would that men do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You treat others the way you want to be treated. I want to tell you, that's easier said than done. If you're like me, you say, I know the principle, but does every time I treat a person the, this way, is that always the way I want to be treated? And the answer has to be no, not always. It's easier said than done, isn't it? You want to know how to live in the present age? You treat others the way you want. You treat people fairly. How do you treat family members? Do you treat them the way you want to be treated? Do you treat your husband the way you want to be treated? Your wife the way you want to be treated? Your parents like you'd want to be treated? Your children the way you'd want to be treated? What about people at work? What about fellow Christians? What about fellow worshipers? Do you treat them the way you'd want to be treated? Things you say to them? The way we act? Our behavior? Treat others fair and right. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4. Now what's interesting about Colossians chapter 4 is that he's talking about master-servant relationships. He's not talking about just fellow Christians. He's not talking about someone that treats you right, so you treat them right. Master, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. You're the master and you have a slave. You're the master, you have a servant. You may not like the way they are. You may not like their attitude. You may not like the way they treat you. But you give them what's fair and right. You pay them what their wages are. You treat them fair and right. Give them what's fair. Here's another passage. Same principle. Titus chapter 1 and in verse 8. This is dealing with qualifications of elders. Be hospitable, lovers of what is good, sober-minded, holy, and self-controlled. The one we skipped on purpose there is go back and catch. They're to be just. Elders are to be just. What does that mean? Deal with people fairly and equally. Do what's fair and what's right. Any passage on love. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll not take the time to run through every characteristic. Beginning at verse 4. Any passage on love, a passage that says love your husband, love your wife, love your children, love your brethren, is a passage that says you treat them fair and you treat them right. Because here's what love does. Love suffers long, verse 4. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, it's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Not interested only in itself. It endures all things. It bears all things. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth and on down the line. Any passage on love. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. One more passage along that line. Chapter 6 and in verse, verse 9. Again, it's the same principle of Colossians 4 and verse 1. That masters do the same thing. Giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. Don't show no partiality towards your servants. Do what's fair and do what's right. Soberly, righteously, let's talk about godly now. What is the idea of being godly? How am I to live in the present age? I'm to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Thera says it means to be piously. Live godly is piously. To live godly or piously. What does that mean? Dedicated, devoted. Clark says it's just the reverse of what's implied in ungodliness. If ungodliness has to do with wickedness, then this is just the opposite of wickedness. If this had to do with being un pious, 
or without piety, then this has to do with piety. There are two words. In fact, some of these are found in the same text, same context. I'm going to show you one of those in just a moment. There's two words that are translated godly. The first one is a compound word meaning well devout. It denotes that piety which is characterized by a Godward attitude that does that which is well pleasing to him. Let's focus on that first word. It's the idea of not just being devoted, but well devoted to God. So some people are somewhat devoted. But if you're godly, you're well devoted to God. Dedication and devotion. You're well devoted to God. The other word has the word for God in it. Theos. And connected with this idea of, of devout. So it means a, a devoutness or a fear or a reverence toward God. And so you're godly, not in the sense you're godlike. That's not what godly means. It means to be devout and devoted to God, well devoted to God. And the word sometimes means, or one word is used, meaning you're devoted to God, a reverence toward God, a fear toward God. So it means the idea of being well devoted unto God. Let's look at some passages and look at their context. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verse 2. This is a text in the, this is a context where he uses one word at verse 2, another word at verse 10. Different word. But one of them means well devoted. The other one means a reverence and piety toward God. Now notice in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about prayer. And I exhort that first of all, prayers and supplications and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life. In other words, our prayer is to be for our leaders. Not so much that this particular leader may win, but whoever is in leadership, that they may lead in such a fashion that we might be able to do what? Look at verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The goal is I want leaders in Washington or around the world so that we can live a life of godliness. What does it mean? Well devoted unto God. Well devoted so that we don't have to back off in any sense or be tempted in any sense to back away from our devotion unto God. Let's go to verse 10. Verse 10 says, in the context that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, or, or costly pearls, or, uh, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, deep reverence toward God. In other words, dress in a way that shows I am deeply reverent toward God. Live godly, deeply reverent toward God. Well, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. That devotion unto God. But interesting that verse 8 says, For bodily exercise profits a little. He is not minimizing the, the benefit of taking care of your physical body, but physical exercise is profitable, greatly profitable, but little in comparison to the value of godliness. But godliness is profitable unto all things. Godliness, devotion unto God is going to help you in every relationship. It's going to help you in your family. It's going to help you in your business. It's going to help you in society. It's going to help you in your relationship to God. It's going to help you in the church. You just keep naming it. It's helpful in every relationship. Profitable unto all things. Let's go to chapter 6, same book. Turn over a couple of chapters. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. In the context of warning about 
those who think gain is godliness. He said godliness with contentment is great gain. Context deals with those who are lovers of money. So which would you rather have if you could have money or you could have godliness? He said godliness with contentment is great gain. That's worth more than anything. Look at verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith, and love, patience, and gentleness. Pursue means you run after and you seek as if it's about to get away from you. You seek after that which is godly. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, which is getting a flavor of the passages that tell us that we need to live godly. This is the grace of God teaching us. Remember? Talk about adding to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance perseverance, and perseverance godliness. Part of the building blocks is, is being more devoted unto God. You should be more devoted now than you were before. Five years from now, you should be even more devoted then than you are now. You go to the degree of your capabilities. Let's go to another passage, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. Speaking of how the world is going to be destroyed in the end of time, the text says, at verse 10, it worked the earth and all things therein will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? When you look at the end of the world, and you say, it's going to all be burned up. What we know of life is going to cease and end. Therefore, what should I do? I should be godly and live holy in all of my conduct and seek to be godly. Well, Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12 says, here's how you live in the present age. Great Bible characters live great in the old times. We know what's going to happen in the future, but what do I do in the present age? We should live soberly and righteously and godly. Are you living soberly? Are you living righteously? Are you living godly? You see, this has to do with our view of ourselves, our view of others, and our view of God. Our relationship with ourself, our relationship to others, and our relationship to God. You see, I'm to deny myself and control myself. I'm to treat others fairly and right, and I'm to be devoted unto God. You live in harmony with that. Every other command, every other requirement comes under one of those headings of those categories. I say no to myself, treat others right, involve service, and I'm devoted unto God, which means I obey anything he told me to do. No wonder he summarized that in three points. Soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Are you living soberly, and righteously, and godly? If you're not a Christian, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're not living soberly. Soberly means you suppress your own will and yield to the will of God. Would you do that this morning? Would you suppress your will and decide, I'm going to do the will of the Lord? And would you then be devoted unto God in service unto God? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge then your faith that you have in Christ and be buried in the waters of baptism that you might obtain the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?